So if you have your Bibles, you can be turning to Revelation chapter 3. While I find my notes, I have so many notes here. <laughs> we can go for a while, I guess. And turn my Bible right side up. <laughs> okay. If you're visiting with us, we uh, have been going through the first three chapters of Revelation and trying to uh, make application, especially to the seven churches that have been written to, to the church here. And I call this a lampstand at Central because the first, um, the first part of this, this letter talks about the lampstand uh, representing the different churches. And we are a lampstand. We are a light to the world. We are, we are part of God's family, His church. And so as we look at these different lampstands, these different churches in these seven different places, we look at ourselves. We see ourselves. And different churches may um, speak stronger to you than others. Uh, this particular one in Laodicea, I, uh, I see myself. I see the church of today. I see Central in Laodicea. In a lot of ways, just as I did in, in the rest of these, uh, of these churches. Uh, I'm calling this the door that Jesus won't open, and we're going to see why in a moment. Uh, one of the things that I've been doing is sharing with you some videos uh, of my time in these different cities in Laodicea. And I'm going to begin by showing you a video. And the, the main purpose of this is just to get us in to Laodicea again. It doesn't have a lot to do with the lesson, but I wanted us to jump into Laodicea, get a sense of it again. I'll show you, I want to show you um, uh, an interesting aspect of the, uh, of the city. And then if you'll look, I don't point it out in this one, if you look behind you, you'll see a covered shed. And we're going to go to that covered shed in just a little bit. But let's go ahead and jump into Laodicea and see what we have here. So let me show you something really neat. I'm standing in a temple with the gaudy um, Corinthian columns here. And you can see them, the entrance here. I'm going to make you up here and show you what's happening. It's kind of a neat concept that I haven't seen anywhere else. I'm sure it's not the first place, but go up the stairs, columns, and then when you get through here, they built a platform where you can see underneath uh, this walk down here, see below you. And what was really funny is a few minutes ago, there was a group of, there they are, older Italian men. I knew they were Italian because they were speaking Italian. And so as they walked, as they walked on here, they were walking like they were going to fall through, taking very gentle steps. Uh, not realizing that I don't think you, you could fall through here if you jumped up and down. It's well built, but it's a really neat uh, concept to be able to look down below the temple, the foundation of it, and yet be able to uh, come in the top part also. So as we've been looking at Laodicea, I wanted to tell you, I personally, I, I'm uncomfortable with myself on the big screen. But I do that, and many of you have uh, thanked me for putting us in these different places and seeing the different places, and so I'm glad I've been able to share these things with you. 
Uh, early in the lessons, I would take one lesson to cover a city, and that was my goal originally. And I did that for, Ephes uh, for uh, Ephesus and Smyrna, I think Pergamum. And I was gently uh, rebuked for doing that and, and because we were kind of rushing through it. And so uh, we, and, and we miss a lot if we rush through it. Uh, there's advantages of going through it quickly and going through it slowly. Uh, so I started taking about two lessons per city. And then we've come to the end, and this is the fourth lesson on Laodicea. But I, I think there is a lot of value in this particular lesson. And the pre, three previous lessons... We learn the danger of self-sufficiency. We certainly should not depend on others in, a, in totally relying on other people. And that's true. We Americans generally have the, the thought process, our culture of being uh, self-sufficient, taking care of ourselves. And I know in the last 50 years or so, there, that's shifted a bit and and we you know, rely on others maybe more than we should. But that's, and I'm not talking about that reliance. The message of the Bible is that we must learn that we totally rely on God for everything. The breath that you have right now, where does that come from? It comes from God. And so we rely, him, rely on Him for, for everything. He supplies material things through others. But when he does that, we're tempted to focus on those others and think that we've received them from, from those people. He supplies our needs through our jobs, but then we're tempted to look at our employer and forget that it was God who supplied that job. I, I've, I've prayed with people who are desperately seeking a God, oh, a job, please God, give me a job. And then they get the job and they thank the employer. Now, we should thank people, sure, but they forget that it was God that gave them the job, and then they forget to thank God that he's done that. He supplies our social needs through the church, through family, through wives, through husbands, through friends, and then we get so focused on those relationships that God has given us that we forget the giver of those relationships, and that's what Laodicea had done. They became so focused on their material wealth, the good things that they had in life, that they had drifted to the point of being what Jesus called the wretched ones. The wretched ones, without even knowing it. And it's when we forget our sinner, when we live our lives through our own power, when we focus on being me-focused instead of Christ-focused, that Jesus says, you are the wretched ones, you're poor, you're naked, you're blind. The last lesson we looked at what I call cultural and biblical echoes. We, we can hear, a lot of times we hear scriptures, other scriptures when we read this. And we go, and that gives us a key to answering, well, what does he mean by gold refined in the fire, for instance? Or these white garments. What does that mean? And we find that answer in both uh, scriptural echoes and cultural echoes, and that's why I brought you to these cities to look at the cities and see what was going on there, because when they said something, uh, they, they would attach it to their current circumstance, just like we might um, if we said something about a rocket. You know, if we made a, some allusion to a rocket, he, we in Huntsville would know, oh, he's talking about NASA, he's talking about our Space and Rocket Center. And in the same way, when they talked about hot and cold, they had a visual 
cultural uh, root in that hot and cold as we spoke about before. And so last time we talked about the meaning behind gold and garments and salve. And we further emphasize that the only way that we can purchase those things, because he says, buy from me these things, is through a relationship with Jesus, because he's already made the purchase. Because how can a person buy something if he's poor? And I'm talking about utterly poor, beggarly poor. He has nothing, and Jesus tells these beggars, buy from me. And the only answer to that is, we can't. And Jesus at that point says, that's right. I've already purchased them for you, and I'm going to give them to you if you want them. Jesus' uh, motive was uh, love. We saw that. We saw how he values people so much. He values you so much that he rebukes and he disciplines you. We saw their condition. They were told what to do. And now what is Laodicea's response? And what is our response to this also? I want to read verse 19 and 20. They're familiar verses for most of us. And we covered the first part of verse 19 last week where it says, Those whom I love I I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Be earnest and repent. Before he has counseled, I said, I give you counsel. I counsel you or I advise you to do certain things. But here he commands. This is the command. Be earnest and repent. And we need to be careful or we're going to misunderstand this. We can just kind of breeze through this. I mean, and my temptation, and most people that I read and I hear, they just say, well, be earnest and repent, and they go on. Well, we, because we, we think we know what that means. But what does this mean? Be earnest and repent. If we're not careful, we're going to misunderstand it. And guess what else we're going to do that I've told you over and over? We're going to begin to focus on my earnestness and my repentance. And we're going to forget about Jesus. It's so easy to do. And so we're going to look at what this means with Jesus being being the focus of our life. It has to be Christ-centered. We saw this from the very first chapter. This is about Jesus, and we're trying to focus on him. And even in our earnestness and our repentance, what is our focus? Where is our focus? A lot of times, and I think this is the incorrect meaning, the, the root word, that word earnestness, and if you look in some of your translation, it may, may say be zealous. And as a onomatopoeia, uh, onomatopoetic word, okay? And what that means is it imitates a sound. Okay, bang! That's onomatopoeia. I learned this in fifth grade. All right, if this is above you, I learned this in fifth grade, onomatopoeia, and I remember that because it's such a neat word that I had no idea what it meant. But bang is one. It's a sound word, okay? The, cl- the train went click-clack, click-clack. That's a onomatopoeia, right? Well, this word... Zeal was onomatopoeia because to the Greeks it sounded like boiling water or bubbling water. Zolulu. I don't know. Does that sound like bubbling water to you? I guess it could. Zolulu. All right, so that's what, that was an onomatopoeia. They, they used that word and that reminded them of this boiling water. 
And so we usually think of a zealous person or zeal as a person who is out of himself. We may say it that way. Or they get excited. Or they're generally loud. It's like a pep rally. Can I tell you my first pep rally? I lived overseas until I was 14 years old. I came home, came back to the States. We moved to North Dakota, from Fiji to North Dakota. And in the islands, we don't have pep rallies. I asked Matthew, do you remember who grew up in Fiji? I said, do, do, you, do you ever remember your friends going to a pep rally in Fiji? And he goes, mm, no. We don't have pep rallies. It must be a cultural thing. And so I remember getting out of class uh, early, half an hour early, and we made our way to the gym for a pep rally. And I'm like, what in the world is this? And so I turned to someone I was walking with and said, well, what are we doing? What's happening? We're going to a pep rally. What's a pep rally? You don't know what a pep rally is? And so we get there. I had no idea. The band's playing. The girls are out there jumping up and down, screaming at us. You know, we're screaming back at them. You know, it's like, oh, this is a lot of fun, you know. But that's, all it is is get you pumped up. Get you all excited about the football game that's going to come. And then I noticed that when, you know, the band finishes and we all, we kind of walk out. We walk out and we're not excited anymore. That's about as long as the pep rally lasted. And then the football players, and you know, played two hours later. So the pep rally effect was over by that time. But that's what a pep rally is. And so we look at this and say, be zealous, be excited, be jumping up and down. Be that kind of person. Get excited about God. That's the... That's the, the, what we normally read when we say, be zealous or be earnest. You're a lukewarm Christian. You're apathetic. Get out of that. Get all enthused about God. If you're not fired up for God, you're not doing the right thing. That's how we normally think of those words. And the problem with that is that we're describing a personality trait more than a God-called character. Does God call us to be cheerleaders? Does God call us to be jumping up and down for him? And I want you to know there's nothing wrong with enthusiasm, nothing wrong with an out-of-person, out-of-himself person. There's nothing wrong with a jumping up and down Christian, if that's your personality. But it's pretty odd when that's not your personality and you force it. And you're forcing that that thing. I love jumping up and down Christians. I'm glad for them. And, and you know, I'd I, I mention one, but I'm not gonna, I didn't ask him. He's a real tall guy, and he's really excited all the time. Oh, he's jumping up and down back there. <laughs> you know, and that's great to have, the, have that enthusiasm. I can't go to Costco without this huge, you know, I walk into Costco, and here comes Mr. Excitement, and he gives me a hug, and he lifts me off my feet, and, you know, that's him. That's him. But if I did that to you, you'd go, what's wrong with him? <laughs> what is wrong? There's nothing, on the other hand, wrong with a steady, quiet, gentle, behind-the-scenes worker Christian. And both can be zealous. Both can be earnest. Because this word that describes him, which is only used once in the Bible, this is the only time it's ever used, describes this person who can be quiet or all excited. It's the same thing. 
And it's attached to that word, therefore. You know, I've told you before, it says, therefore, that means something before it is is explaining, it's explaining something before, it's therefore a purpose. And it has more to do with how we think than how we act. This word is more of a decision than an emotion. A good motivational speaker can get us all enthused. And we can get all excited about what we're supposed to do. But that's going to last about as long as the memory of the motivational speaker is going to last. If I had the ability to get you all excited and we're all up and jumping up and down, it would probably leave you, that excitement would leave you, I know by tomorrow. And probably by the time you got in the car and started driving away. Especially if your spouse aggravated you during that time then the motivation goes away. But that's not what this is. This lifestyle is an on-again, off-again. It's not something you always need someone to be getting, uh, motivating you. And I want to read a very old, it's, it's a 19th century writer, but he was brilliant, this man named Trench. And he described this word, let's put it up there, it's in, in a book called Synonyms of the New Testament. And he's describing this particular word, and he says it signifies the honorable emulation with the consequent imitation of that which presents itself to the mind's eye as excellent. Very poetic way of saying this. What he is saying is this word looks at something, whoops, this word looks at something and says, I want that. I want to be that. That's what the word means. This earnestness. It doesn't mean getting excited. It means looking at something and saying, I want to emulate. I want to imitate whatever it is. It can be many, many different things. But that's what the word is saying. In other words, it's an earnestness to imitate something that is worthy. This is something worth my while for me to imitate. And he goes on to describe this zeal or this earnestness as an active emulation which grieves, not because someone has something you do not have, that's envy. If I see something that you have that I don't have, that's the opposite of this word, it's envy. And it's, it will tear you down, it wants to tear you down. But over that which is lacking in me and then seeking to make up the deficiency in myself. In other words, I see something in you and I say, man, that's what I want. And instead of tearing you down because you have it, I I try and figure out what I need to change in my life. That's what the word means. What do I need to change? And so in this context, the question is, well, what are we to be earnest about? What are we to change? What are we to emulate? Their lukewarmness was a state in which they had found that Christ had been pushed to the side of their daily life. We're going to see that in just a moment. How Christ not had been pushed to the side and not even pushed behind them, but had been pushed outside their life. He's outside standing at a door. They had riches. They had beautiful clothes. They had the attitude, we don't need a thing. We don't need anything. And that's what lukewarmness was. They desperately needed Christ. And they should have been focused on him and their everyday life. But instead, they were focused on, look what I have. I've got a good job. I've got money. I've got a clothes rack full of nice clothes. I've got medicine when I'm sick. I've got a Walgreens 
a CVS that I can go to. I don't need, why do I need the Lord? They didn't say that, but that's what they did. They pushed him out. Their earnestness is not by getting pumped up, but by getting refocused on Christ. Earnestness means this. He's not saying, now listen, you guys get excited. Get excited. Look at all of you. You're all sitting there like you're unexcited. Get excited. He's not saying that. He's saying, I want you to refocus your life on Christ. That's earnestness. It's not getting excited about a church program. It's not being led by a motivational speaker. And this word means do this always, all right? It means continually be this way. Every hour, be earnest. You cannot be excited every hour. I don't care who you are. The most excited person in this room cannot be excited every hour. Maybe 23 hours out of 24, but they can't be excited every hour all the time. They get down too. And it's not at that point you say, oh, now you're not being earnest. But everyone can be focused on Christ 24 hours a day, and that's earnestness. Be continually focused on Christ. Don't focus on our programs. Don't focus on your leaders. Don't focus on your situation or your circumstances. Don't focus on your problems. Don't focus on the good things that you have in life, but focus on Christ. That's what earnestness means. Can you be earnest? And be a quiet, gentle soul? Of course. You don't have to be excited. You can just be quiet and gentle, focused on Christ. You're an earnest person. And he says, so be earnest and repent. And this word fundamentally means this. Change the way you think. You've been thinking wrong. It's time to think right. And the emphasis, again, is not so much on our actions as it is on how you think. You have to start thinking differently. Or we could say it starts with your thinking, and then your, it moves to action. Repentance always moves to action, but it initially means change the way you think. And as you change the way you think, you'll change the way you act. All right? And that's, that's what it means. What were they being called to change or repent? They were to change their thinking. They were to change their action, and their, and their thinking was this. We don't need anything or anyone. We covered that in a previous lesson. And it says that there, uh, you say in verse 17, I'm rich, I've required wealth, and do not need a thing. That was, their, that was their thinking. We don't need anything. And I told you how that when the earthquake came in 61 and leveled the city, and the Roman uh, Nero, he, he sent his, his people there, and they said, we're, we're, we're handing out money. To rebuild the city. And they said, we don't need a thing. We can do it ourselves. That was their attitude because they were that wealthy. And he says here, now, you need to change that from I don't need anything from anyone to I need everything from Christ. That's repentance. This was the Laodiceans' fault. This was their lukewarm state. This is the lie that they were living. They were living a lie. And their lie that they were living is, we're, we have everything we need. We don't need anything. And, and Jesus says, that's a lie. You need everything, and you need it from me. They thought themselves rich because they looked at their physical wealth. Jesus is calling them to change their thinking to the truth. 
You're poverty-stricken. You're, you're beggars. You need him. They thought that they were finely dressed. When in fact, Jesus said, no, you're naked. And they were called to the truth of that condition. They thought they saw life clearly. They had good vision. They saw life clearly. And he says, no, you're blind. Repentance is changing the way you think about everything. And so we're going to go into this open door. We're going to look at another video in, in Laodicea. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about the open door here in this video. And then we're going to go into verse 20 and look at it uh, specifically. We're standing under some beautiful, beautifully carved Corinthian columns in Laodicea. And the second thing that the letter to the Laodiceans uh, is known for is where it says, uh, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open, I'll come in. And that's been a misused passage. Uh, some people have used that to, to um, say uh, to a non-Christian that they need to become a Christian, that God stands at the door of their heart and is knocking on the door. But it was written to the Laodicean Christians, uh, not non-Christians. And so he was saying to people, and the, I guess the, the thing that is frightening or concerning is that Christians can shut Christ out of their lives. And I'm sure they do this very, very slowly. I think we've all experienced it to one degree or, or another. We slowly shut him out. And I think in the context of this letter, we shut him out as we become more and more self-sufficient. As we become self-sufficient in, in our health, in our uh, jobs, in our material wealth, it's really an easy thing to do. And we need to be careful that that doesn't happen. And so he says the door, this is the door that Jesus won't open. He begins by saying, here I am in the NIV. The word can be translated, look. Your old translations will say, behold. It's a word we don't use hardly ever. But it means look. Seven times in chapters 1, 2, and 3 so far, he has called our attention. That's what this is all about. He's calling your attention. If I were to say, hey, everyone, look, and I point it over there in the back, look. And, I'm, and you all, like, you want to see, some of you know that I'm not serious, but you want to look when I point somewhere. And that's what he said. He said, look, I want you to pay attention now. After all that's been said, after you look at your attention and how it's been put on yourself and not on God, how I've shown you your true condition, what you're really like, I've given you direction, I've given you counsel what to do. I've called you to an earnestness and a repentance. And then he says, now look. And when they lift up their eyes and they look, what do they see? They see they've placed Christ outside. And it must have been heartbreaking to them to realize this. Shattering for them to see the truth that they have pushed Jesus out the door and close the door. They don't want to do that. I don't know of a Christian that wants to do that. That specifically tries to do that. 
But slowly in time, they've nudged him out. They've shut the door. And the door is locked. You ever locked your keys in a car? You know the frustration. Have you ever been locked out of your house? You know, you leave, you're, you, I've come home at, at night after Julie's been in bed. And I knock at the door and call out her name. <laughs> you know, trying to get her attention. And it's just that feeling of being outside in the dark, in the cold. And we've all had it to one degree or another. And as I said, I don't think these people knew they had done that. But this letter reveals it to them. And this is what is interesting about this is he has just told, told those in Philadelphia, the, the, what, the uh, place before. He says, I have the key of David. I have the key of David. And I open doors that no one can shut. And I shut doors that no one can open. Here is the one that can open and shut doors anytime he wants to. But he says, there's one door I'm not going to open. There's one door I'm not going to come to. And that's the door of your life when you shut it. And here I see the character of God that I'm never that you will not see in any other literature. This is one of the things that convinces me that the Bible is God's truth because it reveals a God that we can't think of. Here's the picture of Almighty God, Almighty God in a way that no one can imagine. This is the one who has said he's the first and the last. He holds the churches in his all-powerful hands. He's the one who speaks truth. He has all authority. He's holy. He's true and many, many other things. And he allows himself. This is God allowing himself to be ushered out of your life. And he stands there on the outside knocking and calling out. But he will not force himself on you. He will not barge in. There's a cultural echo here. These Laodiceans in their city, they, there was a Roman law that at any time a Roman soldier wanted to, he could open the door to your house, come in, and be there for 24 hours. You had to feed them. You had to take care of them. You had to serve them. You had to give them the best bed. For 24 hours. He could do it for 24 hours and then have to leave. And then his friend could come in. You could host a Roman soldier every day of your life. It would just be a different one. And when he said, I'm standing, at, I'm standing at the door and not. They were used to someone forcing themselves in. Coming in and demanding. I'm ready to eat. What do you have for supper? I'm tired. I'm going to sleep. Where's your bed? I expect breakfast in the morning. None of that from Jesus. They must have resented those intrusions to their privacy. But God is the God who so respects your freedom. He so respects your freedom to make a choice that he allows you to reject him before he'll force himself on you. And man, when I think about that, and I think that's the God that we serve. That's the God who says, you can come, you can let me in and love but I'm not going to force myself to come in. But the result of opening up that door, he says, I will come in and eat. These people who had shut Jesus out of their lives, who lived as if they didn't need him, didn't want him, Jesus said, listen, just open the door, and what you're going to get from me is communion and fellowship and friendship. He doesn't enter to mistreat us, 
to badger us, to berate us for our bad behavior, what we've been doing. I've been outside for years, cold. He's not coming in that way. He says, I'm going to come in, I'm going to eat with you. The Greeks and Romans had three meals a day just like we generally do. We have three with lots of snacks. They had three meals. The early morning meal was usually bread and some wine. They dipped hard bread in wine. That was breakfast. They brought a lunch with them to work. They didn't have McDonald's back in those days. They brought work, lunch with them, what we call brown bagging it. They just had a, some kind of container like that little boy in the Gospels. We had you know, fish and loaves. That's just a, that was a sack lunch is what that was. But boy, the evening meal, when they came home, that was the meal of the day. And that's the word that is used here, the meal of the day. It's, it's not these quick snacks. This is the last meal that was always leisurely. This was the best food that the person in the house had cooked. It was, an, it was a day without television. It was a day without devices. And so as the sun set, they would light little lamps. And they would sit around and have a leisurely meal that would last two or three hours. They would talk. They would laugh. They would learn. They would draw closer to one another. This was a meal that they spent with their family and their best friends at time. People that they honored, they would bring to this meal. And Jesus says, hey, let's do this. Let's get reacquainted. You pushed me out of, my, out of your life. Let's get reacquainted. Learn from me. Become my friend. Relax. Let's enjoy one another's company. That's God. God wants to come into our lives and say, listen. Let's just, let's have a meal together. Let's have a feast together. But the problem is, you got to open the door. You have to open the door. It's so easy for me to slip Jesus behind the door and close it. And I do that when I focus my life on my life instead of his. We do it when we let the world around us draw our fellowship to the world, our friendship becomes to the world, comes, we're friends with the world. We focus on earthly things, the things that, good things we have and the problems that we have. And we don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. But we will if we're not careful. These Laodicean Christians did not purposefully push Jesus out. I don't think they did. I think when they read this letter, after they read all the other letters and they saw all the things that these other churches were doing, good and bad, and they came to them, I think they were shocked when Jesus told them their true condition. And not only their true condition, but where you put, put me. I'm outside the door and I'm knocking. I wonder if they repented. Let's take a look at a video here that that at this point it really hit me what I think happened in not only Laodicea but other places too. Behind me is the church building of the Laodiceans. It was uh, built in, in the reign of Constantine in the early 300s and um, it, has, it was discovered in 2010 and, and excavated during that year and they've built these neat platforms where you can walk all through it and signs that you can read about different things. Unfortunately, the gate is locked and I can't get in there. I can just see it. Very tempted to climb over the walls, but that, that probably wouldn't be a good idea. 
but again, I'm, I'm impressed or amazed that once Christianity became legal and uh, wasn't uh, persecuted, how these uh, the small house churches that existed here ended up uh, about 300 years later building these grand church buildings uh, to meet in. And we can still see uh, the ruins of, of it today. Here's the thought. The church building behind me was built in the 300s. That meant the Church of the Laodiceans were here for hundreds, a uh, few hundred years after the book of Revelation was written. And it made me wonder, uh, I'm sure they had uh, copies of the Bible, of at least many of the letters, uh, and surely they had the letter of Revelation. And I wondered if the preachers ever opened up to Revelation and said, hey, remember what Jesus said to us. He said, let's not be lukewarm. Uh, let's not be self-sufficient. I wonder if that sermon was preached, and I wondered if the people listened and, uh, and followed the instructions that they were given in that letter, even one, two, three, four hundred years after it was written, delivered here, and then maybe re-taught here uh, over and over. When I, about that time, as the third city I went to, it dawned to me, most, most, many of the, I won't say most, but many of the commentaries, things I read, say something like this. These churches did not repent, and there's no church there anymore. But as I walked through, I saw evidence of churches being there for hundreds of years. I think every church repented. Wouldn't you? I mean, if there was a, a letter that we knew came from Jesus himself and it says, To the church at Central, I tell you, I know your works. I know what you do. And this is what you are like, and this is what I'm calling you to be. You think we'd just go, well, whatever. I think there'd be some people that would do that. But I think for the most part, people would say, no, this is, God was talking to me. The Laodiceans, they heard Philadelphia, okay, Philadelphia, whatever, that's a city up the road. But this is talking to me, the church of the Laodiceans. The, the amen says this, the faithful, the true. And he says, I know your deeds, and they're waiting for what he's going to say good. And he says, yeah, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm. Wow. And wasn't that a sermon that the preachers preached at that church building that, we, that was behind me? I know that sermon was preached in that church building more than once. Jesus wrote a letter to us, and he said this, and we're not going to be that way anymore. I want to read my paraphrase, and then we'll close. This is the whole, whole section. Write to the envoy of the ones I called out of the world in Laodicea. These are the words of the one who has the final word in all things, the one faithful and true. He is the one who states the facts plainly and truthfully. This one is monarch of creation. He says, I know everything you do. I know your works and how you spend your energy. You're not a boiling pot of water. You're not a refreshing cup of cold water. Oh, that's what I'd want. 
cold or hot. In your circumstance, you're tepid. Not hot tea, not iced tea. I'm about ready to throw up, spew you out of my mouth. But you say, I'm loaded. I'm well, I've become wealthy. I don't need anyone or anything. You don't have a clue. You, and I mean you, are the wretched one. You need mercy. You're beggarly poor. You're blind and can't see a thing. You're walking around in your underwear. Here's what you need to do. Purchase from me pure, refined gold, and you'll be truly rich. I have blazing white gar garments ready to buy. Then you'll be able to cover your naked embarrassment. I salve this for sale. Put this on your eyes and you'll see clearly. I lay out the facts. Expose the truth to those I hold in the highest esteem. Those I care for, I put through all the rigors of training and discipline. That's true love. Therefore, your life must be bubbling over in earnest emulation of me. And you must truly make a firm and absolute change in the way you think. Look here. You pushed me out of your life. I'm no longer centered in your thinking. I'm outside uh, knocking on your door, trying to get your attention. If any one of you heard what I told you, you know the sound of my voice. Get up out of your chair and come to the door and open it. You know that I'll walk right in and we'll have a feast. You eating with me and I eating with you just the way life was meant to be. If you are pushed Jesus outside your door, let him in. He wants to have a feast with you. Open up the door. I can't, he's not going to force it open, and I can't motivate you to open it. You just got to be motivated by God's word. If you've heard his voice, open up that door. If, you're, if you've not ever invited him into your life, you're not a Christian, and it's time for you to become a Christian, you don't know how to become a Christian, I'm not going to spend an hour explaining that to you, but we can sit down together. We can open up God's word and see what he says so you can come into a relationship with him and you can center your life around him, and you can live life the way it's meant to be. If we can help you, our elders are going to come as we stand and sing this invitation song.